Why scandals don't add up to damage candidates. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Donald Trump is facing numerous legal challenges for misconduct, but it does not appear to be hurting him, at least with Republican voters. Members of Congress like George Santos are also brushing off mounting scandals, even using them to raise money. How anomalous are these cases? Have candidates grown immune from scandal, even at one after another? This week, I talked to Brian Hamill of Louisiana State University about his article with Michael Miller, How Voters Punish and Donors Protect Legislators Embroiled in Scandal. He finds that scandals traditionally hurt incumbents with voters, but helped with donors. But with the rise of nationalized, polarized campaigns, they no longer hurt with voters. Politicians have honed a strategy of attacking the accusers and mobilizing their base to avoid punishment. I also talked to Mandy Bates-Bailey of Valdosta State University about her article with Stephen Nawara, Scandal-Ridden Campaigns. She finds that scandals can hurt candidates with voters, but multiple scandals don't hurt them any more than one scandal. Voters can only process so much about a candidate, and only some voters will prioritize that information over partisanship. The evidence suggests that voters are not quite ignoring scandals, but we shouldn't expect them to bring down candidates who seek to stay and fight. I think you'll enjoy our conversations, starting with Brian Hamill. So your uh, research on uh, U.S. House uh, scandals finds uh, that scandals do hurt legislators among voters. Um, What did you use to assess that and what were the size of those effects? Great. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, So uh, I did some some research with uh, Michael Miller at Barnard College. and uh, we are interested in the effects of scandal uh, among members of Congress on their vote share. So, so what we did is we started with a data set of uh, U.S. House scandals between 1980 and 2010. Um, so this is an existing data set. Uh, it includes a range of types of scandals from financial scandals, so things like bribery, tax evasion, uh, political scandals, which would be something like professional misconduct, misuse of funds, campaign funds. Uh, sex scandals, so sexual harassment, extramarital affairs, and then there's kind of this other category that that captures everything else. Um, I think the important thing to note here is that these are not just cases that Congress has investigated as part of the Ethics Committee. Um, so those would be things that only cover sort of uh, regulate congressional behavior, uh, but this is covering a wide range of things. And so over this 30-year period, we've got about 100 scandals, uh, and most of them are financial scandals. Uh, what we did is um, one thing we wanted to do is figure out kind of what's the media coverage around these things. So uh, we did a search of newspaper archives uh, to find out uh, when did the scandal break. In other words, when was the first time the public could have possibly learned about this scandal? And so we looked through any newspaper through through the archives and found what's the first time this was mentioned. And then we looked after that date, and we tried to see how often was it covered. And so we tried to see how often was it covered in the New York Times uh, in the 30 days after uh, the break date of the scandal. And so we've got all this this information about these scandals, uh, and we wanted to know how did this affect your your vote share in the the next election. And so what we did is we compared uh, members of Congress who were involved in those scandals to similar members who were not involved in the scandal. So in other words, um, take uh, members who have the same party affiliation, same level of previous support in the, in the last election, same levels of seniority, similar ideology. Um, but the difference is one of them was involved in a scandal and one of them was not. Okay, And so we, we compare uh, those two types of members. And what we found is that 
uh, averaging across all of the 30 years of data, uh, you lose about four percentage points in your vote share uh, if you're involved in a scandal. Uh, however, those effects are much bigger if you look at members of Congress uh, uh, who are involved in a scandal and for which there was media coverage around that scandal. So if your scandal was covered by the New York Times, it's an eight percentage point drop uh, in vote share. Uh, but for those scandals that received no media coverage, had no visibility, um, there is really no effect that we can observe of that scandal. Uh, and so what it suggests is that, um, you know, scandal is you're going to lose votes, right? People are going are gonna to abandon you electorally. Uh, but it's really going to depend on the degree to which there's media coverage. So you also found, though, that there was a partially compensating effect for donations, um, that these scandal-plagued legislators um, might generate more donations. So how did you do that, and, and what was the size of those, those effects? Yeah, so, so this was really interesting. So we used um, that break date that I was telling you about, where uh, we, we uh, figured out we know when the scandal broke, um, and the nice thing is that campaign contribution records, uh, every contribution that is made to a candidate uh, that is above a certain amount is, um, is public, and each of those contributions are dated. And so we could actually see whether people were donating to the politician uh, after the scandal broke or not. Um, and so what we did exactly that. We looked to see whether you raise more money after the scandal breaks than you were raising uh, before the scandal broke. Um, and yeah, exactly. We found that that you actually raise more money after the scandal breaks, right? And so we call this that sort of donors are coming to your rescue. Um, and so it's actually a pretty substantial effect. So uh, when you are involved in a scandal, you raise about 35% more uh, than you did before you before the scandal broke. Uh, and those effects are even larger uh, when that scandal is covered by the media. So those effects go up to about, about 60%. Um, and so I think what, what, how do we explain this kind of effect? Um, I think, you know, what we know is that most campaign contributions are made by individual donors. Um, these are people who tend to be uh, donate for expressive purposes. Uh, they're donating to um, promote a particular policy party or ideological cause. They also tend to be pretty ideologically extreme and, and pretty strong partisans. So what we think is happening here is that a scandal breaks and partisans are, are coming to the rescue and seeking to protect uh, members of their own party, right? They may not believe the allegations, but even if they do uh, think they might be true, they recognize that they would rather have still someone from their own party in office than perhaps someone from the other party getting elected because of this scandal. Um, the other important thing to note is that most of these individual donors are out of district and many are out of state, right? And so uh, they really are donating money to defend their political party more so than the actual member of Congress who's involved in this, right? They don't are not being represented by them. They don't particularly care necessarily about that individual member, but they do care about uh, their party, right? And so that so we think that's sort of what's what's driving a lot of these effects. So you mentioned that you combine a lot of different uh, types of behavior under this uh, label of scandal. Um, I think you find some differences um, across uh, the, the scandals in how much coverage they get and how much impact they, they can get. Uh, so what, was the, what were the big uh, differences? Yeah, so we did find some uh, differences by the type of scandal. Um, and this is something that previous work has found. So previous work has shown that, uh, for example, financial scandals tend to be viewed more negatively uh, than sex scandals do. Um, 
we actually found sort of the opposite of that. We find effects for financial and sex scandals, uh, but we actually see slightly larger effects for uh, sex scandals. Um, we don't really have an explanation for this, so we think it's an important area for future research. Um, but I will say that um, some of the other areas where we don't see a lot of effects for political scandals and this sort of other category, um, you know, we have a relatively small sample size there. Um, things in the other category are things like, you know, being arrested for driving under the influence, receiving a speeding ticket. Um, you know, I think these types of scandals, and you could probably include political scandals in there too, uh, they may indicate um, bad judgment. Right. Uh, but voters may not see these as necessarily being relevant uh, for uh, uh, the ability of a member of Congress to do their job. Right. Um, except to the extent that it's sort of a repeated behavior. Um, and so that could be one reason why you don't see see effects there. But again, I think another big part is this media coverage. Right. So the financial scandals and the sex scandals are likely to garner much more media coverage uh, than, uh, say, receiving a, a, a speeding ticket. Right. Um, or even misuse of campaign funds, right? So we think about media coverage as a continuum, as a spectrum, the, the financial and sex scandals are much more likely probably to, to receive more coverage. So uh, one of the big findings in prior literature is that uh, partisanship can kind of dampen uh, these uh, effects um, because partisans might not want to go against uh, their own party. Um, and you uh, are, are unable to kind of look at it at individual voter level, but you do see uh, some changes over time that correspond to increased nationalization and polarization. So talk about those and, and uh, do you see that as kind of evidence that, that partisanship is able to kind of block these effects? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this is probably the, the most interesting part of the paper. And, and um, I should say that it's not something that um, when we originally wrote this paper was actually part of the paper, it actually came out of the peer review process. But um, what we find is that um, these effects on both these voter effects and these donor effects have changed quite dramatically, even over the 30 year period that, that we look at. So uh, first, we find that uh, after 1994, voters are actually uh, no longer punishing uh, members involved in scandal at the polls. So uh, after 1994, 1994 to 2010, there's no difference in your vote share, no decrease in your vote share uh, when you are involved in a scandal. So the electoral cost to scandal is really at an all-time low. Um, at the same time, all of those positive effects that we find for fundraising are occurring after 1994. Right. So, um, you know, before 1994, you're not raising more money when you're involved in a scandal. And now you are. So I think this this says a lot about contemporary politics. And I think it's consistent with a lot of literature on, on partisanship and polarization. Um, but I but I, I think, you know, scandal now may only be a good thing. Right. I, I'm not saying that you're going to win more votes if you're involved in a scandal. Uh, rather, it's that voters are really totally unaffected by it. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to now raise a ton of money, right? You're going to raise more money than you never did before. Um, and so it suggests, I think, that partisanship is so strong today that voters care much less about uh, these valence characteristics. And similarly, donors, when they're donating, they're perhaps even more expressive than they ever have been. Um, and so, you know, I will say our, our data ended in 2010. And so, you know, you might wonder, well, what's happened in the last 13 years? Um, we can't be sure of that uh, just based on this study, but my guess is that nothing really has changed. If anything, you might be even able to raise even more money 
today after a scandal than you could between 1994 and 2010. In terms of the voter effects, I would guess that um, there still really is no uh, uh, negative effect of scandal right on your vote share. So this is a, an area of research that kind of uh, ebbs and flows with sort of major scandals, and we kind of go go back to it now and then. So how would you kind of summarize what we know and, and what is still up for debate um, about the effects of scandals? Yeah, so I think, you know, the most important thing um, that we know, and this is true in the United States, this is also true outside of the United States, um, is that most politicians that are involved in scandal will win re-election, right, if they decide to seek re-election. So uh, the effects that we showed, right, which was an eight percentage point drop, uh, again, that's confined to that 1980-1994 period for, for scandals that have media coverage, those effects are, are not really big enough to substantially change the likelihood that you're going to win uh, when most incumbents are running in very safe seats, right? So um, being involved in a scandal is often a difference of winning by a lot by versus winning by a, a little less, right? And so I think this is probably even more true today, again, as those voter effects appear to be declining even further. So the reality is that most voters have a lot of things that they care about when they're voting, right? And scandal is maybe not one of the most important things, okay? The second thing is that, that these scandal effects are context-dependent. So that's going to be true about uh, the type of scandal, right? Whether it's a financial or sex scandal. Um, but regardless of what type of scandal it is, all of them need to be covered by the media, right? So voters and donors, for that matter, are not responding to all types of scandal. They're only responding to those things that they know about, right? And so the media is a crucial linkage institution here, as it usually is, in informing uh, uh, voters and donors about uh, scandals. So um, in terms of what we don't know a lot about, and I think, I think um, this is a literature, again, that, as you said, it, it sort of ebbs and flows as there's, as there's scandals uh, occurring. Um, I think there's a couple things. One is all of the literature is very um, voter-centric, right? So we see these scandals observe, and then we look at how voters respond to them. Uh, there's very little work as far as I know, about research looking at how politicians respond to allegations of scandal, right? So what happens when the politician admits to what they did, right, and tries to kind of, uh, uh, you know, curtail the effects of it uh, versus when politicians come out and say, you know, this is a political attack, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything wrong, right? We don't know a lot about uh, how that shapes those res the response of politicians who are involved in scandals, how that shapes how voters react. Um, the second thing that I think we, we need to do more of, and this is, again, coming uh, uh, as a step against the very voter-centric literature, is we don't know a lot about what elites do, right? So, um, you know, what about the party uh, network of activists? What about sort of establishment party donors? What about other politicians? So uh, I've done some work in Italy uh, on scandal and corruption, which shows that uh, party elites, party leaders, party bosses, they're very, um, they're much more willing to punish uh, politicians who are involved in scandal uh, than our voters, right? And part of the reason is that, that they think that potentially having one member of your party involved in scandal could hurt the rest of the party, right? Um, and voters, of course, don't really make those calculations when they're necessarily in the ballot box. And so, uh, you know, we can think more about how do other party elites respond to their fellow uh, members of Congress when they're involved in scandal. 
Um, one way you could do that is to say, um, you know, for example, a lot of politicians have leadership packs where they're able to donate money to their fellow uh, members of Congress. Uh, you can imagine doing a similar study to what Michael and I did. We're looking at uh, how does the scandal affect your ability to raise money and garner support from politicians in your own party? So I think uh, generally, I think we've done a nice job in the literature of figuring out the voter effects. Um, and there's certainly more to do there. But I think the next step is thinking about uh, elite responsiveness to scandal. So uh, one thing that stimulated my uh, move back to this literature uh, is that uh, Donald Trump was recently uh, indicted for false business accounting, uh, which was both a, a sex and financial scandal. Uh, on the other hand, it's obviously uh, one in a long list of the negative publicity that uh, Trump has, has gotten. Um, there was some early indication or at least claims that this might help with uh, his, his fundraising. Uh, may or may not be having strong effects on on voters. Um, uh, give us a sense of how much you think your research applies to, to this situation uh, and if you would expect similar dynamics. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, you know, I think I think we will absolutely see positive fundraising effects, as, as you pointed out, like, you know, his campaign has alluded to the fact that they've raised quite a bit of money, I think $7 million since the indictment came down. And of course, you know, um, that's somewhat cheap talk is they can say, you know, that they've raised whatever amount of money they want to. Uh, but I definitely believe that, that that is probably something that happens. And I think it's going to continue to happen the more that he talks about it, right? The more that he uh, frames this uh, indictment as uh, an attack by Democratic Party elites, right? Which is certainly exactly what he's going to do. Um, I also think it's unlikely we'll see any voter effects, right? For Donald Trump, the, the challenge is that he's very well defined, right? So people who are against him are still against him. People who are for him are not going to jump off the bandwagon at this point, right? And so um, people are just so committed to their preferred party to let a scandal get in the way. And so it's consistent a bit with our post-1994 effects that we find. But I think in the case of Trump, it's even more... Um, you're even more, it's less likely even more so that you're going to see these voter effects because of the fact that he's so well-defined. At the very least, for a member of Congress, many, many voters are not super um, aware of what their member, who their member of Congress is, let alone what they're doing. And so a scandal is at least providing some new information that could potentially in, impact your evaluations. In the case of Donald Trump, there's not a whole lot that we can learn or that anyone can learn whether you're for or against him that's going to change your mind. Um, and so I think what you're going to see is you're going to see his base support him more and more. They're going to do that partially through fundraising. But I don't ultimately think that it's going to have a major effect uh, on, on people voting for him or not uh, uh, in, the, in the next election. Another recent example that got a lot of attention uh, was Congressman George Santos, uh, who got elected in New York um, and then was sort of later found to have uh, made up uh, most or a lot of different aspects of his uh, biography. Um, are there any similar examples we can learn uh, from the past about that um, uh, type of, of scandal? Is this an example? The media coverage wasn't there uh, and therefore uh, it didn't have any effect um, or is this just not the kind of thing that tends to break through? Yeah, so I mean, I think George Santos is a pretty unique case. I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like this. Um, you know, I think it is interesting, uh, you know, you think about like, well, people will say, well, how did he get elected? Well, 
you know, I do think part of the story here is is media in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of this, none of this stuff was was sort of unearthed and covered while he was actually running. Okay. And so you might say, well, if this came out while he was running, uh, this would have this would have impacted his his ability to win. Um, but I still don't think we've seen anything quite like it. Um, I think, you know, um, you know, Mitt Romney had said that, you know, I mean, George Santos had said that that he was just, you know, slight embellishments. And, and, you know, Mitt Romney said, well, like the, you know, an embellishment is saying you got an, an A uh, in a course when you got an A minus. And, uh, you know, what this is more is, is like, you know, you said you graduated from a college you never attended, right? So politicians certainly embellish all the time, but we probably haven't seen this level of downright lying about just a range of things. Um, in some sense, his behavior since all of this has come out, which has basically been to say, uh, you know, I'm not resigning, I'm staying in office, um, you know, I've made some mistakes, but it's not a big deal. Um, it, it almost sounds like his behavior is suggesting that he has read my paper um, because, uh, you know, he might be thinking, well, that ultimately voters don't really care about this stuff, that he can ride this out. Uh, and that by the time it comes for election day in, in 2024, he could still get reelected. Everyone will have forgotten about it and, and no one really cares to begin with. Um, you know, Santos's challenge, though, is that he actually represents a very competitive district politically. Right. So he actually only won with with about 54 percent of the vote in 2022. Um, and so even a small drops in support may be enough to do him in. Uh, at the end of the day. So he is banking on the idea that that voters don't care about this stuff and that they also have short-term memory and that, um, you know, by the end, by, by election day, it won't matter. Um, but I don't know that we've ever seen anything like this because to be honest with you, I think that if another, Paul, I think that it's, I think we all expect that he would resign. And I think that is based on what we would expect most people to do, uh, but he has not done that. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what what happens with him in the next election. So you have also done uh, research uh, on uh, changes in partisanship uh, over time, uh, finding that uh, it's now less responsive to economic fundamentals and opinions of the current uh, president. Um, and that matches, of course, a long line of, of research um, that uh, seems to suggest that uh, people's partisanship is just getting stronger and more influential in other uh, aspects of, of their politics, leading to, to some kind of online commentary that, you know, uh, LOL, nothing matters anymore, no matter what happens. So to what extent do you see this as kind of a, just another example of just polarization, meaning, you know, we're going to see less and less effective of anything uh, uh, other than sort of baseline partisanship? Yeah, I, th I think the, the de declining scandal effects that we see uh, in, for voters, as well as the increasing effects for fundraising, right? I think it's a great example of, of polarization. I think it's a great example of the heightened partisan competition that we see, right? So the whole our whole finding about this pre-post-1994, um, you know, the reason we chose 1994 is because um, 1994 sort of marks the beginning of heightened partisan competition, particularly for Congress, where uh, previously, between the 50s and 1994, Democrats held, uh, held the U.S. House at, uh, through all of that time period, and it was never competitive. And starting in 1994, uh, since then, we've seen very uh, tight margins of party control. And um, uh, there's always a possibility that it could flip, that, that, that the, the minority party could become the majority. Uh, and it's very, that, that um, quest for power is very competitive. 
Um, and so I think this is very consistent with that, right? That as things, as the stakes got higher, right? People uh, uh, clung, uh, were clinging to their partisanship more than ever before, right? Um, and so people are not evaluating you on the basis of what you do in office necessarily, right? They're more wedded to their party and they're sticking to it no matter what, whether it's scandal, whether it's a bad economy uh, that is happening under your party's leadership, um, it, it doesn't matter as much, right? And, and in fact, not only do, do voters maybe not care so much, they're actually going to work harder to defend that party uh, through those bad times, whether it be scandal or bad economy, as much as they can, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, I think, I think all of this fits uh, very neatly together um, around work on, on partisanship and polarization uh, in the modern era. So as you mentioned, um, there's now kind of a standard politician response um, to uh, scandals. Not that this is any of it's individually new, but there appears to be kind of a playbook uh, now uh, where you can accuse uh, the media and uh, even the justice system or the investigators of being politically motivated uh, and affiliated with the the opposition uh, party. How much do you think that um, kind of response uh, matters? Uh, for uh, these effects? Uh, and, you know, I guess how new is sort of the coalescing behind this message um, that might be designed to get uh, co-partisans uh, behind you? Yeah, so I think the, the, this messaging tactic that politicians are taking, and certainly Trump is the, is the best example of it, um, you know, it, you know, I hesitate to say that it's new entirely because I think there is always an element of, uh, you know, most politicians will uh, will will deny, 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 right, until they're not able to do so anymore. And I think that's always been true. But I do think there's this new element of attacking the media, of attacking the justice system that you mentioned. That that that's that seems pretty new. Um, and as I said, I think this is a super important area for future research. Research again, thinking about the how do politicians respond when they're under attack. Um, and I certainly think the response of the attacker may drive a lot of the degree of these fundraising effects, right? So the more and more and more that you can rile up the partisan donor base to defend you, the more money you're probably going to raise, right? If you come out and say, hey, you know, these allegations are true, right? Um, what incentive are you giving for partisan donors to try to defend you, right? Try to give you the money and the ammunition that you need to go out and defend yourself and, and maintain your seat in office or win election, right? So uh, the more that you can, uh, that you can paint um, uh, yourself as sort of the victim, right? The victim of uh, in, you know, a, a media system that's out to get you or a justice system, the more that you can do that, the more you paint yourself as the victim and the more uh, people are gonna wanna support you, right? People that are on your side. So I think, um, you know, if we were to redo our analysis and we had data showing the degree to which politicians um, sort of uh, defended themselves against the attacks uh, in their campaign ads or their speeches or rhetoric, um, I think you'd find that most of the effects would probably be in the places where politicians were, were behaving in that way. But what about a candidate who's facing multiple scandals? Mandy Bailey finds that doesn't help any one scandal break through. Steve and I got the idea for this paper with um, an old Simpsons episode. There's an episode where Mr. Burns' health is in question and he sees a physician and the physician basically tells him through a demonstration with a bunch of little rubber balls uh, that have faces on him, 
Uh, and he says, basically what's going on here is you've got all these rubber balls and they're trying to get through the door. Um, but none are able, not, not a single one is able to do so because they're all kind of clouding the door frame, right? They're, 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 um, making it difficult for any one illness, uh, to attack his body because they're all sort of working uh, against each other. And that gave us the idea, uh, and put us on the road to cognitive load theory, uh, which, which suggests that, um, you know, when you're moving information from long-term memory to working memory, that um, you you only have a certain capacity to do so. There's only there's only a certain amount of considerations you're able to hold in your head at one time. And we started looking at Donald Trump and thinking, wow, there's all of these scandals that are impacting them, and some are decades old, and some are just coming out as a campaign is unfolding. But nothing seems to stick, at least not with his supporters. And uh, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to see how that would work if we were looking at somebody that didn't have as high profile. So we utilized a fictitious congressional candidate that was a state senator and we varied the partisanship and uh, we placed it in a in a um, manipulated media frame. So you're getting a, a feed from a local newspaper. Um, and uh, Steve had a whole lot of fun coming up with, uh, you know, pretend scandals and fake drug names and, and all of that stuff uh, where, you know, some people didn't get any scandals at all. And some folks got one scandal and others got a slew of scandals. And what we found was that one scandal does have some detrimental effects. Uh, but when you pile on, that doesn't necessarily hurt the candidate anymore. And why, why don't uh, more scandals hurt candidates? You might think that, you know, some people would be concerned about one of them and uh, other people concerned about another, or there might be kind of an Irish breaking point uh, with this candidate at some point. Um, so, so why doesn't that happen with scandals? Well, from what we are looking at, our perspective would, would say that there's just too much for folks to deal with, right? After a while, it's difficult for anything to be resonant. Um, and what, interestingly enough, um, and, and relating to partisanship, interestingly enough, we found uh, that um, partisanship only seemed to play a role when you're looking at willingness to vote for the candidate, right, or, or electability or whatever. We didn't actually find that to be the case when we were looking at morality or, or favorability, right? So um, there's this idea that you're just sort of clogging up the road, right? It's, it's, it's a traffic jam and only so much can get through. So is it true that partisanship kind of overwhelms these, uh, these effects or uh, can some of this information get through? What we find is that partisanship only impacts electability, not necessarily the, the perspectives of morality or favorability. But there is some research, and there's a NIAN piece in the British Journal of Political Science that looks at presidential approval, and it's it illustrates that um, well, presidential approval is linked to the onset of media bias. So it's a little frightening because it would suggest that if out partisans are less hostile, they're less possible because they the the president in question is not as offensive as the person could be. So that's a little a little scary because it suggests that favorability 
impacts our willingness to let scandals resonate, if that makes sense. And so I think that that's a little frightening. Uh, certainly there's, there's research that looks to partisanship, um, but we don't really find that in our research rather than to say, hey, you're probably going to vote for, you know, the end partisan, right? You're probably going to vote for the, for the person with which you identify with, but that doesn't mean that you like them. So I went uh, back to your article because uh, uh, former President Trump was recently indicted um, for a uh, payoff uh, sex scandal, um, and he may be indicted uh, for interfering in the elections in Georgia uh, or some of the other federal investigations um, that, that he's currently under investigation for. So it seemed pertinent uh, that, um, you know, maybe this would be interpreted through the lens of, of previous scandals. But how how well would you uh, kind of apply your research to, to this situation? There's definitely a connection, right? Um, the current indictment, uh, the pending investigations, Certainly, those could be looked at as additional scandals on the ever-growing heap. Um, there are, but there are, I think, a couple different ways to look at this. Uh, first, it it deals with already support for for Trump to Trump opponents. It's possible that if these issues sort of play out in rapid succession, that they're not going to be interpreted as separate scandals, but rather, you know, part of a uh, overarching scandal. Um, that uh, could be viewed as sort of a a slew of untoward and nefarious activities all aimed at sort of desperately getting and holding on to office that, you know, Trump no longer has a right to. Um, Alternatively, it could could be seen in a completely different way to supporters. So if opponents are looking at it as this sort of um, this this snowballing, um, you know, snowballing collection of misdeeds, supporters um, could look at it as, you know, a bigger witch hunt. Um, And those scenarios, they relate to information processing. Um, You know, one's just remembering summary judgments. Um, Another way to look at that, a second way to look at that would be looking at it as separate scandals. And our research endeavored to look at sort of distinguishable sketchy behavior. Um, But what we didn't do was we didn't create multiple treatments that had differing aspects of sketchy behavior. So, you know, if you got the single, the single scandal treatment, you got the, um, uh, you got the sexual misconduct. If you got uh, additional scandals, you got several additional scandals from, you know, nepotism or whatever. We did not, separate those out. Um, And, you know, that could be looked at as a shortcoming of our search. From our perspective, um, we didn't separate them out because we knew that we were going to have sort of sample size issues within the sales if if we did that. Um, But, um, you know, our suggestions uh, working with cognitive load um, sort of suggest that successive scandals aren't necessarily any more detrimental than the initial hit. And this could be why Trump opponents are sort of lamenting the New York case coming first, right? The New York case is potentially, you know, the least damning of the cases that are coming forward to Trump. We're not dealing with, you know, trying to strong arm an election or concealing classified documents. Um, You know, the New York case, 
you know, is basically hinging on a rider that, that, that applies only in New York. Right. Uh, and so, um, certainly I think it applies to cognitive load theory. If, if that answers your question sufficiently. It does. So just on the last uh, point, uh, yeah, there has been people, there have been people even, um, even in support of the indictment who say, well, this is not the strongest, um, does do you know do you have a sense of whether the order matters um, or is it the case that it's just going to be one scandal after another? You know, no well, matter. Well, cognitive load would suggest that the that the order does matter, right? What hits first um, is going to be more resonant, and as you pile on it, um, you might um, you're not necessarily going to weaken the effects, but you're not going to strengthen them, right? Um, so, you know, we don't suggest, you know, we don't come out of this suggesting that multiple scandals nullify the initial hit, uh, um, but they also don't strengthen it either. So in this case, yeah, you know, people that have serious issues with Trump, you hear lines being cited, like, you know, even a, even a criminal, but can be innocent of a given crime. Right. And, and that's kind of the, the, the argument that, that you're hearing. Whereas perhaps if the Georgia case unfolded first, um, that could be the hit that would be resonant as opposed, or, or the Mar-a-Lago case, that could be the hit that was resonant as opposed to one in which um, there's sort of a, uh, it's almost Lewinsky-esque, right? Like we're looking at a, at a you know, a sexual uh, misconduct situation um, that is connect that can just be interpreted as a felony in New York. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, a lot of people see this as the weakest of the cases, and cognitive low would suggest that yeah, that would that would benefit Trump and Trump supporters more so than it would be those that are sort of waiting for you know for, for you know for the final straw. So the I think the primary interpretation of uh, Trump and, and these scandals has just been that there's something about Trump specifically that he's uh, somehow a Teflon candidate at least for Republican voters. Um, so to what extent do you see, I guess, your interpretation here as an alternative, or I, I know you've studied Trump a lot, so is there something about him that would make him particularly immune to kind of these scandals piling up? This is a great question because it gets at a couple of different things. Our research involves public perception, not legality. Um, so from our perspective, if you're going to be bad, you might as well give it hell and be as bad as you can possibly be uh, and get the most bang for your buck. Right. Um, people tend to look at Trump and say that um, increasingly allegations of wrongdoing are just going to slide off. But our interpretation is a little bit different. It's it's that from a mental perspective, um, those allegations might not get even close enough to uh, to evaluations of him to slide off, right? Like they're not getting through in the first place to have any impact at all sort of after the initial hit. So of course, Trump isn't the only uh, one uh, with scandals. Um, and one of the most high profile congressional scandals recently uh, also might uh, fit the pattern. Uh, Congressman George Santos in uh, New York uh, was accused of and seems uh, pretty guilty of uh, making up a lot of detail about <laughs> their campaign biography. Um, and it did seem um, maybe that the pattern fit in that, you know, we just got another and another and another thing that he made up from his biography and might have just been categorized as a liar uh, or not. 
on the other hand, maybe this is a case where he he would be hurt with voters. It's just that the voters didn't find out uh, in, until later. So I guess how, how well does that fit the case? Um, this is another great consideration. It's um, it's interesting because Santos seems to be treated as, as a pariah with his own party, while other members of his party can traffic in conspiracy theories and and. You sort of get, I mean, I'm thinking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren Bober, and they can get caught up in, you know, outright lies. Um, and, uh, you know, but Santos seems to attract a lot of media attention um, uh, for the mistruths. Um, I think that there are a couple of things we need to consider when we look at Santos. One, there's a difference between how we look at congressional candidates and how we look at presidential candidates. Um, voters are myopic. And so, you know, the farther away we get from this, we have to ask ourselves, um, you know, if Santos runs again in 2024, are, um, how much of this are voters going to remember, right? Um, our search doesn't get into temporal effects enough. Um, so we're using a, you know, a static instrument. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind, but certainly cognitive load theory could apply. So could online processing models. Um, you know, there's so much negativity um, that it allows very little to get through. Um, again, look at this in comparison with, you know, Clinton in 2016 versus Trump. Whenever we heard anything negative related to Clinton, it was always emails, 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 right? From time to time, you know, you might see, um, Benghazi sort of filtered in, but it was used generally, it was all emails and, and that message became resonant where it was whiplash with Trump, right? You never knew what was coming at you. Um, and to that extent, Santos is very similar. You're, you're, you're getting that whiplash. Um, it, this certainly introduces new opportunities for research when you're dealing with, you know, a congressional candidate, um, and one that is has sort of faced a little more rebuke from the party um, than Trump did. So, yeah, I mean, actually, that's somewhere where we're toying with going with our research is, is looking looking um, at the Santos case, although not necessarily utilizing Santos, right? So none of the kind of responses to scandals are, are fully new, um, but there seems to be a pretty established playbook uh, now uh, where you say your opponents are politically motivated. Uh, look, they've been involved in the opposition party. You uh, don't treat the media or the justice system as being independent. They're kind of part of the problem. You've even got the deep state or people's ideas that people within the government are conspiring against um, me. So, um, you know, that that might seem to, to make it easier to go against um, uh, people who are flinging multiple scandals. Um, uh, so to what extent do you think uh, that that kind of matters, the, the response to the attack or even this narrative uh, that can be easily deployed uh, in the face of, of lots of scandals? There's been a lot of research into credibility of sources, and I think that that speaks to where we're going um, with this particular question. Certainly, Jamie Drunkman has some good research um, uh, in this world, and, and I think the intriguing aspect of where we are now... Sort of, uh, is that we're at the intersection, and and I live in Florida, so that's kind of an ugly word right now. Anything that that, that uses intersection, but um, we're at the intersection of information processing and conspiracy theories and media effects. 
Um, Trump spent a lot of time casting doubt on media and the justice system and creating a, uh, creating a situation where, to at least to his supporters, um, even if you can overcome um, the limits of processing so much scandalous information, casting doubt on the messenger has created um, an element of, of sort of political immunity. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly as a lot of folks in our field and, and more broadly, you know, in the public square have, have lamented this way of thinking can have some really detrimental effects on democratic governance. Um, we can mitigate a bit of that with education and information literacy. Um, but, you know, higher ed is under attack in certain parts of the country. Um, and there's an exposure issue here uh, when we're talking about individuals selectively consuming media. So there's a lot going on and there's a lot to to unpack in that question. Um, if we're talking about the extent to which, um, you know, we can really sit down and evaluate scandals and what that means to an individual's ability to govern, we first have to get through um, that hump of hearing the information in the first place, right? Um, and when you cast out on the messenger, um, your ability to look at the scandal as, you know, something that actually transpired rather than something that's just created is compromised. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. When Information About Candidates Persuades Voters, The Electoral Effect of Impeachment, How Republicans Lost 2018 by Being Too Close to Trump, What Became of Never Trump Republicans, and Why Do Americans Accept Democratic Backsliding? Thanks to Brian Hamill and Mandy Bates-Bailey for joining me. Please check out How Voters Punish and Donors Protect Legislators Embroiled in Scandal and Scandal-Ridden Campaigns, and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.